among my very favorite things about living in Kentucky in real summertime are the fireflies. Anyone who spent an evening outside around here in midsummer probably knows what I mean. But if you're um, standing there, it's as if there are a million little lights twinkling in the field. And if the field is hilly and it moves away from you upward, the most extraordinary thing happens. The space between the fireflies and the stars disappears. It's an extraordinary sight. Somehow in those moments, earth and heaven seem to touch. And somehow the stars seem closer. Yesterday we celebrated All Saints Day, a day in which we remember those faithful people who have gone before us. Ordinary and extraordinary saints, now with the Lord, but somehow still also in communion with us. Saints, holy ones, still part of our Christian community in some mysterious way. The connection between earth and heaven, alive here and alive there, is blurred as we reflect on the ways in which those, those people are part of the great cloud of witnesses cheering us on in our sojourn here. And today, a little bit later in the service, we will celebrate communion together, a holy time when again the line between earth and heaven is a bit more blurred and we experience Jesus' presence in the meal we share. We've been blessed in so many ways to experience God's presence, God's full community, beauty, and holiness. Perhaps it's because I'm fascinated by fireflies and stars that I find this morning's reading from Philippians so compelling. It's such a magnificent image. Paul paints a picture of a small congregation, faithful but struggling, a congregation that shines like stars in the universe. Paul is writing to friends, beloved partners in the gospel. He wants their holiness to shine in their community and in the world. In the first chapters of Philippians, before we get to the passage we just heard read, we learn that this is a community that eagerly shares in Paul's work, and about whom Paul could say, the one who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. It's a community facing both suffering and internal tensions while seeking to remain faithful. And Paul challenges them to live a life worthy of the gospel. That's chapter 1, verse 27. A life worthy of the gospel. And then he spells out some aspects of that life. Standing firm in one spirit, striving side by side. And we realize very quickly, it's a corporate concern. Paul is talking here about a shared life, a life together that's worthy of the gospel. And Paul then challenges them to be of the same mind, to have the same love, living in humility, regarding others as better than themselves, looking to the interests of others rather than their own. He's giving us major clues to what a holy community looks like. And then he says, in your relationships with one another, let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. This gets to the heart of holiness in community. 
the heart of holiness in individuals as well as in community. Having the same mind as was in Jesus, who emptied himself, humbled himself. In Charles Wesley's wonderful words, who emptied himself of all but love. Jesus, Paul tells us, in very nature God, Jesus didn't use his status and equality as something to cling to or something to use for himself and his own benefit. He humbled himself and took on the form of a servant. This is what Paul is challenging the Philippian community toward. After this description of Christ in Philippians 2, Paul writes the big therefore, right? Therefore, in verse 12, live into your salvation. Work it out because God is at work in you. Work it out together, imitating Christ's humility and love while being empowered by him. And then he describes the communal practices that reflect a holiness of life. The elements of relationships between people that reflect life in Christ. Elements of a holy life. Do everything without complaining and arguing. Abandon that self-centered grumbling and quarreling that undermines community. Leave behind the petty bickering that poisons relationships and live in gratitude and humility so that you will be blameless and innocent so that your character is pure, undiluted, and above reproach. And then in verse 15, Paul writes that as they live this life of holiness, they will shine like stars in a warped and broken world. Because of who Jesus is and what he has done in them and in their life together, they can live in such a way that they shine like stars in the world as they firmly hold on to the word of life. And the Greek here is ambiguous. It can mean as they hold on to the word of life or hold out the word of life. Holding on to as in being faithful and obedient to the word or holding forth and holding out as in mission and witness to the world. And surely it's both. We will shine like stars only as we are faithful to Christ, as we live our lives worthy of the gospel, and as we share in Christ's holiness and love. And only as we do that can we offer to the world the word of life. Think about the image, our holiness shining like stars in the midst of a world that's dark, corrupted, and perverse, our fragile, imperfect communities and congregations, as we hold on to Christ, as we live in holiness together, shine like stars as we move forward in love and mission. This morning, I have been asked to reflect on social holiness, our theme for this week, and to make some suggestions about what a Wesleyan understanding of social holiness might look like. And surely George Acevedo was very helpful yesterday in pointing us toward the importance of truthfulness and vulnerability in Christian community, and especially within small accountability groups. He reminded us of the importance of the incarnation for understanding holiness, Jesus' willingness to enter into our messy lives to draw us into his. Holiness inscribed deep in Wesleyan identity and commitment. Holiness 
beautiful and often misunderstood, precious and yet sometimes narrowly, very narrowly defined. Holiness, isn't that enough? Why use the modifier social, right? What's social about holiness? Very early in most attempts to answer this question, our friend John Wesley gets quoted. His most frequently cited comment about social holiness is found in the preface to the 1739 edition of Hymns and Sacred Poems. And there he's being critical of mystics who maintained that holiness is achieved in solitary efforts, that the soul is most pure as it pursues holiness in isolation or solitude. And so Wesley wrote, direct, this is a quote, directly opposite to this is the gospel of Christ. Solitary religion is not to be found there. Holy solitaries is a phrase no more consistent to the gospel than holy adulterers. The gospel of Christ knows no religion but social, no holiness but social holiness. It is, shall we say, one of Wesley's more blunt statements. Wesley also writes explicitly about Christianity being a social religion, especially in his fourth sermon on the Sermon on the Mount, as he's discussing the significance of Jesus' teaching in Matthew 5 about his followers being salt of the earth and light of the world. And early in the sermon, Wesley again takes on those people who maintain that we will best experience God and holiness in, quote, high and heavenly contemplation, communing with God in our hearts, free from the encumbrances of outward things and other people. And Wesley says in response that Christianity is, quote, essentially a social religion, and that to turn it into a solitary one is to destroy it. In fact, he says, Christian faith is impossible without society, without community, without living and conversing with others. Here, he's not arguing against the rhythms of solitude and engagement, but against traditions that maintain that followers of Christ could learn holiness apart from interactions and relationships with people. And Wesley goes on to ask, how would you ever learn meekness or humility or gentleness or patience outside of relationships with other people? Where would be the opportunities for peacemaking and doing good, such fundamental aspects of Christian faith and practice? How would you learn mercy and purity of heart apart from human interaction? How would you learn holiness? In the sermon on Matthew 5, Wesley quotes Jesus that believers are the light of the world with regard both to our attitudes or what Wesley calls our tempers and actions. Wesley says that our holiness makes us as conspicuous as the sun in the midst of heaven. And he continues, love cannot be hid any more than light, and least of all when it shines in action, in love, and concludes, let your light shine, let it shine before all whom, with whom you are, in the whole tenor of your conversation, even more so in your actions, in doing all possible good to all people. Let your earnest desire of universal holiness and full happiness in God, and your tender goodwill to all, your fervent love for God, let it shine. Here, Wesley's working with Jesus' image of being light. In Philippians, Paul's working with Old Testament images of the people of God shining like stars. In both cases, there's a powerful sense of our corporate holiness, 
illuminating the darkness and drawing people toward God. But then Wesley responds to another tradition, to those Christians who are convinced that holiness was best cultivated by only being in relationships with good people, those who were themselves holy of heart or holy of life. But Wesley was unwilling to limit our social relations to such persons, I think for two primary reasons. First, because interactions with people outside the faith help us grow in every Christ-like disposition, in what he calls the complication of love and holy tempers. And second, because our interactions allow us to be salt and light in the world, to check or limit or heal the corruption there, and to share the grace we have received. And so toward the end of his life, in his sermon entitled On Visiting the Sick, Wesley argues that works of mercy, providing someone with food or drink, visiting them in their sickness or their imprisonment, are means of grace, like works of piety, like prayer and scripture reading, communion and fasting. And here, obviously, those acts are a means of grace to the person who's receiving them, the person who's in need, but Wesley's actually talking about how they're also means of grace to the person who's doing them. Because in the interaction, we experience the grace and presence of God, and we grow in holiness, even when the circumstances are difficult. So what can we say about John Wesley and social holiness? Well, I would say he doesn't really separate, separate out personal and social holiness. They're part of the same whole. What he does reject is a privatized, isolated notion of holiness, some idea that holiest, holiness is truest or best or most fully realized when it's just about God and me. It's not personal or social holiness, as if the two are separate or different things. It's holiness, holiness of heart, holiness of life, forged in the disciplines of piety and mercy, forged in prayer and study and communion and in the rough and tumble of relationships and service. Wesley does not actually use the term social holiness very much at all, but for him, holiness is social to the core, social to the core because it's fundamentally about love, love for God and neighbor, it is in our relationships, our social settings of family and church, community and ministry that holiness is shaped. The context, the meaning of holiness itself, and the outcome are all social because our faith is social, rooted in our loving triune God. One of the great gifts of the Wesleyan tradition is this deep, earnest desire for holiness and happiness in God. Wesley saw it as only accomplished in relationships, and often in relationships of mutual accountability, discipline, and support. So not surprisingly, his emphasis on small groups and visiting, and on holy conversation and holy friendships, but also on engagement with the world in works of mercy, advocacy, and reform. I think perhaps Methodists have made both too much and too little of Wesley's comments on social holiness. Often it has been articulated somehow in relation to personal holiness, but then the writer or the speaker goes on to talk about a pretty individualized understanding of the pursuit of holiness. Or it has been recast as a basis for a concern about social justice, 
and used as a way of locating justice concerns in Wesley's writings. But that's not what Wesley was talking about as social holiness. Wesley certainly was passionately concerned about justice issues. The plight of poor people, prisoners, sick people, those who were enslaved. He was remarkable in his commitment to alleviating suffering, moving people toward healing and wholeness, but also challenging evil structures and helping people to see injustice and complicated wickedness wherever it was. He was an advocate and an actor on behalf of others. And as I already noted, he recognized that as we engage with people who were in need, those engagements could be a means of grace, could be a way in which God worked holiness in us. But his comments, his particular comments about social holiness pointed toward his recognition of the importance of Christian community and accountability for spiritual growth, nurture, and transformation. Wesley understood that any social setting could be an opportunity to live into holiness, but some settings of accountability could be exceptionally helpful for growth. That's the small groups, the bands, the community meetings, like contemporary covenant groups and accountability groups. They were small intentional meetings of mutual accountability and encouragement, settings for truthful recounting of how one's week had gone, of behaviors and temptations, of failings in those other social settings. Such groups are a precious structure for making sure that our lives don't get swallowed up by the world's values and demands, and that we don't stagnate spiritually. Such intentional gatherings allow us to think together regularly about what really matters, to speak truth into each other's lives in the context of fidelity, of faithfulness, and to pray for one another. For Wesley, growing in holiness meant having the mind of Christ and walking as he walked, being cleansed from sin and pure in intention, all the result of grace. And for him, we do this mostly in the context of community, relationships, mutual accountability, where people will watch over one another in love. Holiness is faith working by love, active in love, love toward God, toward brothers and sisters, and to all persons. Love expressed in meekness, humility, zeal, and patience, forgiveness, sympathy, truthfulness, grace, and practical ministry. Wesley was convinced that holiness was beautiful, that when our hearts are renewed after the image of God, when a life shines with a meek, humble, and loving spirit, we are transformed into the likeness of the one who created and saved us. So from this brief sojourn with John Wesley, an even briefer visit with the Apostle Paul, what can we say about social holiness? Well, let me make just a couple points. First, I would say it doesn't make sense to separate personal and social holiness. And holiness is best understood in connection with mission. We don't get to choose between personal and social holiness. It's not one or the other. They aren't entirely separable. We can't have a holy community without individuals who are being made holy. But they can't be made holy apart from community. And we cannot live out our call to be light in the world or stars in the universe apart from this social holiness. Wesley's emphasis on accountable relationships is a challenge to our individualistic notions that we can grow on our own. 
Relationships are not encumbrances to growth. They are the soil. Holiness is personal and it's communal. We should never underestimate the importance of time alone with God in prayer and scripture and reflection. That goes without saying. But those practices aren't enough. We are not formed by removing ourselves from the irritations and distractions of community life. We are saved individually, but we are saved to be a people, a community of God made for God's purposes. So holiness has a missional dimension. Holiness as it's embodied in individuals and in community is a light in the world to limit its corruption and to draw persons to faith in Christ. We will shine, we do shine, when we follow Jesus, walk as he walked, and love what he loves. Second, it really matters how we conduct, our, conduct ourselves in church. Our life together is the best sermon we'll ever get to preach. Our relationships and our interactions with members of our congregations, again, are not inconvenient distractions on the way to holiness. As I mentioned before, they're the soil for the growth. If we see our church life and communities as places where Jesus is present, if we see our board and finance meetings and potluck dinners and discipleship groups and youth ministries as sites for holiness because Jesus is present, then those settings will shine. The communities we form, the churches we attend, are not just a means to an end of individual improvement. They allow our corporate testimony to be a witness to the world. What we do in the world to draw persons to Christ, to help those in need, to advocate for the voiceless and heal the brokenhearted, to change structures, all of that comes out of a reservoir of holiness and feeds into the holiness. We do not need to keep looking for perfect churches or congregations. In the very places we find ourselves, God can shape us toward holiness, if we are willing. In the difficulties and disappointments and in how we respond to them, we are formed to holiness. Jesus is present with us. When we find ourselves in the middle of the messiness of shared life, he's there. He has promised to be there. And as we live into his presence and holiness, we do shine like stars. Third, our protection as we go into the world, holding out the word of life, is by holding on to it and onto Christian community. We will be splashed by the mud of a crooked and perverse world if we seek to do good in it, if we seek to follow Jesus into the darkest and most difficult places. We can be undone by the corruption of shady deals in back alleys, but also by the glittering allure of wealth and power in high places. Our protection from the sin is not worldly weapons. It is a pure heart and a community that is pure without being prim. Our protection is holiness, being like Jesus. So with Jesus, we can go into the hard places and not become hard, into the corrupt places and not become corrupt and into the ambiguous circumstances and not be drawn into permanent ambiguity. If we go into dangerous places without being attentive to holiness, we will be undermined by the sin we encountered there or undone by the sin within ourselves, by pride and personal ambition.
that we struggle with. If we work on social change without attention to holiness, we will be tempted to use any means necessary to accomplish our ends. And as a result, we will often miss the ends we are seeking. It is crucial to cultivate a pure heart, a tender conscience and a sturdy posture to continually make sure that our means are as holy as our ends. If we do not hold on to the word of life, the grim misery and evil we encounter will work its way into our souls. Becoming morally callous is a huge risk. Being cynical and hardened because we've seen too much evil is a spiritual disaster. The only thing that can avert such disaster is to hold on to Christ and to be located in faithful, truthful, tender communities. We desperately need the wisdom and discernment that Christian community can provide. And the final point. Holiness is beautiful. Holiness might well be understood as an eruption of God's beauty in the world. Shining like stars, being light in the world, are beautiful images. They're not necessarily convenient identities. They're costly. Because some people prefer darkness, holiness can be a target for mockery in a cynical culture. Holiness doesn't immediately fit contemporary notions of beauty or stardom, but in a world groaning under the weight of corruption and pride and cruelty, many people are very hungry for a deeper expression of beauty and integrity. People are not looking for communities that have a veneer of polished cheerfulness or carefully crafted success. They long for robust, generous, authentic goodness and holiness. Holiness that chooses truthfulness and faithfulness over quick fixes and flashy successes. People are drawn to holiness that embraces mystery and grace, but doesn't use them as a cover for sloppy thinking. And holiness that can offer significant cultural critique without disrespect and heartlessness toward people. If holiness has to do with having the mind of Christ and walking as he walked, being the body of Christ in the world, a people within and among whom Christ dwells, then it's not surprising that earth and heaven come closer when we gather in Jesus' name, when we hold fast to Christ and as we offer him to others. So as we turn now to our time of Holy Communion, we rejoice that it is one of those blessed occasions when in our journey toward holiness and wholeness, we can join together in gratitude and worship to celebrate the one who gives us life and light, who pours out grace and healing. <laughs>